Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Welcome to the judgment episode of our discussion of Rek Dala Saga Ok Vigaskuta. Uh, and while this saga has some charm to it, I, I have to admit that I'm not sorry to be finishing up with this one. Yeah, I understand. But come on, it's been great exploring a saga that we've never really made time for. Yeah, that's true. This This is actually one of the real benefits of this podcast for us. Besides getting us in touch with some great saga fans out there... It's also pushed us to broaden our own knowledge of the sagas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of those sagas that you know is out there, maybe. But uh, but it's <laughs> it's easy to skip when there are heavy hitters like Grettir and Lokstala and famous texts like Hrafnkell or Gisli. Uh, and we're always under some mm-hmm. pressure to read and reread the texts that get more critical attention. Well, sure. But, I mean, that's sort of self-perpetuating, right? I mean, yeah. the critically important sagas are the ones that critics read and write about. Yeah, well, that's exactly the point I'm making. I, I think we've already found a couple of gems among the lesser-known sagas, and mm-hmm. I, I know I'm really, really interested in some at some point returning to Vigland's saga and uh, writing some stuff about that, uh, if only I yeah. could find the time to do that. Right. And I feel like we've had some similar insights emerge from our discussion of Rekdal. Now, wait a minute. You really think so? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't sound too confident. Now, I, I do smell a little bit of a digression coming on here, and, and mm-hmm. all I'm trying to do is drive a stake through Rekdala's black fly-infested heart and, and maybe move on to our next saga. <laughs> wow. You really have some issues with this one, don't you? Oh, just you wait. Now, I, although, you know, my wife recently pointed out that, you know, we'll often bash a saga only to end up scoring it high, or, or we'll praise a saga throughout and then undercut it at the end, so. Is that right? Uh, like where? Well, I, I, I think, honestly, she was disappointed in our scoring of Finn Bogey Saga. Uh, mm. I, you know, I know it was a fun saga, and I think I was pretty effusive about it as we went through, but... Wait a minute. You're not looking to change your score again, are you? No, no, no. Uh, switching once was embarrassing enough. <laughs> and hilarious. Oh, sure it was. Maybe for you. Uh, but I but I am going to stand by that adjusted score. I think it's appropriate. Yeah. Uh, so how do you justify the discrepancies between our presentation and our scores for your wife? Well, you know, I just said that it's scholars being scholars. <laughs> oh, so dismissive. I, I think that's kind of true, though. I, I tend to think of my final judgment as completely separate from my gut reaction to the saga itself. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't really approach that score simply as a reader. There are a lot of factors to consider when scoring a saga. But but I tend to favor a few things in particular. Like, obviously, aesthetics and characterization and something I like to call saga ness. This is your scholarly term, saga-iness? Is that even a word? Well, it is now. Yeah, I coined it. Care to define it for us? Saga-iness. Uh, it is of or having the quality of a saga. Uh-huh. Hmm. But, you know, but I think uh, that it has to feel like a saga and, and hit the right notes. Or if the author's really good, be aware of saga conventions, play with them, uh, do something interesting with them. Now that's fair. Mm-hmm. So given that definition, I also enjoy a good saga that's really saga-y. I thought so, and who doesn't? Um, but, uh, you know, the last and most important thing for me in particular is how a saga fits into and responds to a moment. That could be a literary moment, a style of literature, like the fascinating Spazarthater at the end of Gretir's saga, or even a cultural moment like what we found in Vigland's saga, talking about, uh, you know, a, a marriages and things like that, betrothal customs. Mm-hmm. Um, a saga that reveals something about the moment, uh, one that really engages in dialogue with that moment, that saga gets big bonus points for me. And, and that's probably why a saga like Finn Bogie Saga, which is fairly simplistic and folkloric in nature, had to get a lower score in the end, despite how much I enjoyed reading it. So there. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably, what I look for in a saga is a saga that reads simply, but its construction is quite complex. Mm-hmm. 
And so as you're reading it, you sort of, you're carried along on a narrative that feels very uh, controlled, feels very confident. And then the more you dig into the saga, the more of a web you find underneath it. Interesting. Uh, you know, that, that a, a saga that really has a kind of, uh, a convoluted structure. Uh, underneath its surface really appeals to me. So that, that, that would explain why a Gretcher would score so highly for you, whereas I... Well, a Gretter or an Airbridge saga, yeah. you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think my reasons for scoring those high is completely different. It's interesting. Mm. All right. So, so I kind of derailed us here. I, I'm sorry about that. Yes, you did. Yeah. Uh, and you were trying to get us on task, if I recall. Was I really? Yeah. Uh, you didn't want to hear about the insights we've had while reading Rectalis. Because we don't have any. Some, something about sniffing out a digression, I believe. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, uh, well, you know, the scent of one digression leads to another around here. So yeah, it does seem that way. Well, anyways, I, I forgive you. Uh, oh, so, so kind. Wh- what did you want to say? You forgive me. Gee, thanks. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that I feel like we've been able to find some value in this saga Despite the lack of critical attention. Well, I, the critical silence, I think, speaks volumes. It's almost like a collective critical statement. Uh, this is not a saga people generally think is worth spending a great deal of time on. And honestly, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, I, they're probably right. Well, that doesn't really help justify our own nearly three hours worth of podcast <laughs> time already spent on the saga. That is a lot. But we haven't even gotten to judgments yet. We're probably going to break over four hours total on this thing. I know. You know, by the way, have you considered the implications of all that? Yeah, I'm trying to get to one of them right Ooh, now. Well, don't let me get in your way. Thank you. Well, but one one thing real <laughs> quick. Um, oh, great. No, no, no. The one thing I want to bring up is that we're probably accidentally producing the single longest evaluation of Rekdala in English, even if it is mostly summer. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, yikes. I hadn't really considered that. Mm-hmm. Oh, this poor saga. Hasn't it suffered enough already? Does it really deserve what we've done to it? Oh, it deserves it. No, you know, I'm not sure our <laughs> listeners, who are such great people, deserve to suffer through all of this, but, uh, oh, but it's too late to save them. You know, but we are pulling this one out of its centuries-long obscurity and sharing it with thousands of people, so that's kind of cool. Um, I don't know if uh, I don't know if people in Iceland uh, who can read it in Icelandic necessarily think that it's had centuries-long obscurity. Really, find me an Icelander who's read this recently. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. There you go. So, if you are an Icelander and you are deeply familiar <laughs> and, and passionate about Rekdala Saga, you contact us and let us know. But uh, I'm sure there's a handful of people in the Mivatn area who regard this as a very important. Saga. Honestly, you're probably right. I would bet you, uh, if you go to Mivatan <laughs> and in the gift shops, you might find this particular saga. But if you sit them down and say, do you like this one? If you compare it to the other ones, <laughs> what will they say? They'd say, boy, I really enjoyed Nal Saga. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> or they'll lie to your face and say, I love Rekdala Saga. I really do. Why don't you buy a copy? <laughs> All right. Uh, so what was the point you're trying to make? Uh, well, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the strange tone of this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all these moments when the writer admits that there are multiple versions of the story he's telling, and he really seems at a loss to decide which version to trust. Well, he solves the problem pretty handily. Uh, he's, a, he's a deft author, he is. He just writes <laughs> them all down into this narrative and never resolves them. Uh, yes. But whether it's deliberate or accidental, that creates a kind of verisimilitude that a more polished work doesn't have. Mm. A lot of this saga reads like someone conducting research about historical events. Yeah, that's true. Bad research, ah. not always presented in the best light, but it creates an effect. Who are we to judge how right. good his scholarship is? But uh, it does create an effect. I'll give you that. You know what I mean. Uh, it's like the narrative equivalent of the shaky handheld camera work in the Blair Witch Project. Hmm. It's it's real-ish. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And the apparent lapses into amateurishness just 
kind of add to the veneer of realism? Uh, you know, there's really something to that. And we had a great comment about something similar to that from our listener, Arian. Oh, she agrees with me? Well, she already sounds smart. So, uh, here it is. Uh, so, so here's her note about Rekdala. Uh, she says, I won't argue. Should I do this in a woman's voice? I f- feel like uh, Arian's definitely No, I think you're fine. Okay. I think your voice is close enough. <laughs> really? You know her? <laughs> No. <laughs> All right. She says, I, I won't argue that it's well written and, and I won't argue that it's either compelling or inspiring. I will, however, say that the combination of the petty goings on and oral history style to it do have me feeling like these were real people. I can't help mm. thinking and laughing that these people would be up to petty workplace shenanigans if they were alive today. <laughs> it might be a stapler in a rival's desk drawer rather than a sheep in his pen, but the idea would be the same. They accomplished no great deeds, <laughs> fought over fairly pointless arguments, and caused much of their own misery. But that all makes it feel pretty plausible to me, which is well, that's that's uh, perfect. <laughs> that's one hell of an epitaph of this saga. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's exactly right. Uh, so, I mean, I could say more about this, but I'm afraid I'll convince myself that this is actually a good saga if we keep going. <laughs> well, I think there are arguments to say that this isn't a terrible saga, but we're not going to do that. I think we'll let Arian mm-hmm. have the last word here, at least for now. Okay. Uh, so are we ready to start dissecting this frog? Uh, you, you, these analogies of yours. Uh, yeah, but yes, let's uh, crack this thing open, shall we? Ooh. <laughs> Best bloodshed. Now, the style of writing uh, in this saga doesn't exactly fit with our judgment categories as much as we might mm-hmm. like all the time. But fortunately, the author didn't leave us completely high and dry. So I think we've actually got some decent candidates for Best Bloodshed for you. Uh, indeed we do. Uh, why don't you go ahead and do the honors and start? Gladly I will. Now, for most of these, you might have to use your imagination a little bit if you read the <laughs> saga, because the author basically reports these events as dryly as he possibly can. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I've got two candidates that are pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. The first one comes from Chapter 13. We've got a farmer named Gnup, or Gnup, uh, and he got caught up in a feud between Steingrim and Vaymund. Now, I don't need to provide a lot of detail here since we covered this in the first part of our summary, but Gnup ends up uh, killing Heriolf, the completely innocent and much better brother of Vaymond. Uh, that's right. Uh, because they couldn't get at Vaymond because he was actually defended, mm-hmm. they killed his brother instead. Yeah, and well, because of this, Gnup finds himself in some hot water with Vaymond, understandably. Mm-hmm. And after tracking Gnup's movements, uh, that's kind of a fun name to say, actually. I don't Gnup. I don't run across Gnup very often, but it sounds like a mm-hmm. drop of water kind of hitting the... Nope. Uh, anyway, Vaymond confronts Gnup on the gravel flats of Laugaland, and they both know why they're there, and they begin fighting at once, and so I'll read the saga from here. It says, Both of them had a shield, and they fought for a long time. At length, Vaymond took off Gnup's lower leg, so he stood on his knees and wanted to fight on. But Vaymond said they would stop for the time. And then Vaymond beheads him, right? Uh, no, no, not exactly. He He kind of just goes home, leaves him there. It's not all that impressive, if I'm being completely honest. You know what? I, I completely agree with you. I, I only wanted to bring this one up because it reminds me of the Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, he he also <laughs> ends up on the ground begging for the fight to continue while Arthur rides away. So that's yeah. what's in my head. No, that is pretty similar. It is. And, and, and I don't think it's a great candidate as a saga bl- best bloodshed, but I have always loved the Black Knight. And Gnup gave me a chuckle because of that. So thanks. Well... I'm afraid that wasn't the author's intent, but if it makes you happy, then I guess it works. <laughs> it does make me happy. <laughs> so uh, what's your first candidate? Uh, okay, so my first candidate is something that we actually got a f- question about on our Facebook page from Tim. 
the question was about the moment late in the saga when Skuta and Gloom's forces are facing one another across a wide river. Oh, yes, I know the, this one. Yeah, the river is so wide that Gloom and his friends believe they can safely shout insults without worrying about retribution. Mm-hmm. But when Skuta hears them laughing about the death of his friend Havard of Isoftunga, the saga tells us, Skuta shot a spear with a throwing string across the ford and hit a man called Thrand. Uh, Thrand is killed, by the way. So we've got this moment when Skuta flings a spear a distance everyone assumes is impossible using a throwing string. Yeah. So what uh, is The actual word in Icelandic is snarasbjöti, uh, which literally means spear thrower. Okay. So here's what I've worked out. There's a kind of handheld spear throwing aid called an atlatl. Uh, which is basically a shaft with a hollowed-out trench that a spear thrower holds in his or her hand. That's right, yeah. It adds leverage and force to the throw. It was used by people around the world, in America, Australia, Africa, and so on. Um, you know, uh, I, I've actually used an atlatl. Uh, Have you really? I did, uh, and I was quite good with it, if I do say so myself. How did that come up? Well, I, uh, I you know, I took the kids up to um, the Natural History Museum in Cleveland, and uh, mm-hmm. there was a little display outside. A guy was showing people how to use the atlatl and talking about what it was. And they had a little, uh, you know, like a, an artificial deer set up that you could throw your spear at with the atlatl. Like one of those like foam deer. Yeah, something like practice, that. Yeah. And they kind of marked out what the spots you wanted to hit, you know, right. might be. Anyway, so they let me use the atlatl and uh, we just stood a distance away and then used this thing to throw it. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't that far away. Maybe just a football <laughs> field length away, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> I, you know, I used the atlatl and threw it and uh, it, it not only in like – kind of leveled the way that I would throw the spear mm-hmm. normally because I'm not a good spear thrower. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was very accurate. I hit this, the, the deer right where I needed to a couple times. But that actually makes a lot of sense because one of the qualities of an atletal is that it makes bad spear throwers good. Oh, well, I'm an atletal <laughs> guy. <laughs> so it's the Natural History Museum in Cleveland. Uh, do they have a display for the last time you guys won a championship in any sport or is, does the museum not go back that far? <clears throat> <clears throat> Let's move on. Tell us more about these uh, spear-throwing oh. things. Cool. So, anyway, uh, the Atlatl is not what this is. Uh, oh, well, thanks for sharing. Obviously. Wasting our time. Because right. <laughs> uh, the author calls it a throwing string, right? Does he? It's or- actually a spear-thrower, but it's pretty clear from the context that it's a it's meant to be something small that's attached to the spear, not a big wooden thing that he's carrying. No one, no one knows what he's, going, what he's doing until he... Does it? Okay. Right? So it's not like a, a big implement that he's using. It's this little, I think it's a sort of sling or thong version of the atlatl, um, which is usually called an ankul or an amentum. Hmm. Uh, it was used by the Greeks and Romans in hunting and in javelin throwing competitions. It works the same way as an atlatl. Right? It's essentially looped onto the spear shaft so the thrower's hand and arm can be in a more natural throwing position right? and adds distance and accuracy to the throw. Hmm. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, a French general in Napoleon's army experimented with oncules and found that they increased a man's accurate throwing range by up to four times. That's pretty cool. Uh, so that a man who could throw a javelin accurately 20 yards might achieve 80 yards with an oncule. I would say, as the Mythbusters might say, this is plausible so far. Oh, plausible. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so given that the distance Scuta covers is farther than anyone thinks it's possible to hurl a spear, I think we're probably looking at an oncule. Okay. Uh, now, we know that oncules were used in Rome and Greece, but they're also found wherever the Romans ended up, which means more or less all over Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gauls, the Portuguese, the Primorish Spanish all use them. Uh, oncules are also mentioned in Irish legendary poems 
And remains of them have been found in digs in Denmark. Oh, I'm surprised by that. Yeah, so they know that they were known in the Scandinavian world as well. And of course, uh, spear fishing all over the world relies on a similar thong hold that allows you to, to dart the spear forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they aren't generally featured in the sagas. And no one in the story apart from Skuta seems to know that using one of these things is a possibility. As I said, nobody even realizes what he's doing until he does it. Yeah. So I think what we've got here is a bit of weapon craft that Skuta picked up in his years spent abroad, hmm. either in the Mediterranean or elsewhere, that he's brought back with him. And that's just so cool. Yes, it because is. Because I think even the author doesn't seem to know how to acknowledge this, which lends a definite air of authenticity to this moment. And in any case, it's a great kill. It sure is. So there you go. Okay. Spearing a guy from across a wide river using a... Thank you. Well, I think that's really, really cool. Um, so nice job researching that, John. So you said you had two. What's the next one? Oh, I don't know. Uh, only the surefire winner of Best Bloodshed for this saga, and perhaps oh. even for the second quarter court, whatever that is. So, Is that so? Mm-hmm. Well, please share. I will. Well, uh, you know how saga characters love to send assassins to kill their enemies. I absolutely do. It's a time-honored tradition. It is, um, and it's a good touch of saga ness if I do say so myself. Are you, are you really you're gonna you're gonna keep trying to coin that word, aren't you? <laughs> no, it's it's really not worth doing, which is why I'll keep doing it. Um, <laughs> but in this saga, Killer Skuta seems to have figured out a great way of exposing the man behind the assassin. In chapter twenty one, Skuta figures out that a man called Grim was likely sent by Thorgeir the Gothi. Uh, your thingman, I believe. Yes, uh, my thingman was involved. Um, Grimm was likely sent, I was saying before being interrupted, by a highly <laughs> fictionalized and exaggerated version of Thorgeir the Gothi that bears little resemblance to the man himself. Oh. Uh, and Thorbig Cheekstruck. Um, <laughs> oh, apparently you're not going to try to reserve uh, Thorberg's character. It's just uh, Thorgeir you're trying to save. I, I think uh, this is Thorberg Cheekstruck and how he mm-hmm. lived his life. Yes, but uh, not Go Thorgeir. On. Anyway, rather than kill Grimm outright, like all our other saga heroes do, uh, Skuta drags him out to an island on Mivatn Lake entirely naked. And there he ties him to a stake and says that he's going to stay there until Thorgir saves him. Now, yeah. I think I'm going to question your sequence of events there. Hmm. I think he actually drags him out to the lake, uh, out to the island, and then strips him naked. Um, I don't think he's rowing out there. With- <laughs> I thought the same thing. With this thing, guy naked I, in the rowboat. That thought, seems a little weird. I thought the same thing, but when I went to prep this, um, I looked at the actual saga, and the phrasing that they use says, <laughs> hold on, let me let me find it real quick. Yeah, in chapter 21, John, I went and looked this up. It says, it is said that Skuta took Grimm out to an island in the Mivat Lake, entirely naked. So, oh dear. Then he tied him to a stake. And said he would that be there for some time. That has got to be an awkward ride in the rowboat. <laughs> Doesn't it, though? <laughs> so, you know, it could be just a, you know, a translation issue. Uh, but I'm just right. going with what my saga says. Fair enough. So, naked rowboat rides <laughs> for everyone. Well, I mean, it is it is a brilliant move. I mean, this whole staking out Grimm on the island, not stripping oh, yeah. him before you get in the boat. Uh, because... Doing this forces Thorgir to admit his role in the plot. Absolutely. If he goes and, you know, does anything. Because mm-hmm. that would be useful in a lawsuit to know that Thorgir admits he has a relationship with this guy. Mm-hmm. Sure. And if Thorgir were to submit and go fetch this man, that's true. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Thorgir learns of this grim situation, he 
Oh, yeah. I see what you did there. So I had to pause there so you can get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he asks Thorberg and his son if they want to rescue old Grimm, uh, but they refuse to help, saying, we don't care where Grimm is. Um, oh. And so, you know, poor naked Grimm is left on the island where he is tormented by hunger and midge bites until he dies. And it really is one of the most excruciating and ugly deaths that we've seen in the sagas. So you just try and beat that, John. What do you have for your last one? I want to at least bring up uh, Steingrim and his men ah, yeah. uh, falling into the icy river as they attempt to attack Vaemon Fringe. Yeah, that's a great scene. So what's happening at this moment is that Steingrim uh, is looking for a way to cross the river and get at Vaemon. It's sort of a bad decision on his part to choose the attack at a moment when they're on the wrong side of a river from their enemies. Uh, but Steingrim saw they would not get anything done where they could get no closer. The only thing was to try to find a way over the ice to Oskel and his company. Then Oskel spoke to Steingrim and told him to cross the ice carefully, that it was not safe. Which, as we said, is sort of an odd moment for Oskel, sort of, you know, being generous to a fault to his enemies. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, it is said that the ice broke beneath Steingrim and his men after Helgi, the first of Steingrim's men to cross the river is hit in the chest with an axe and falls back into the river and shatters the ice. Now, at this point, some claim Vaemon shot Steingrim with a spear when he tried to come up through a hole in the ice, and that caused his death. And some say he drowned there in the hole. Along with Steingrim, two other men drowned, and two of his company were killed. Helgi is kinsman-in-law and one other man. Mm. Right, so what we've got here is just men falling into the water thrashing around, trying to make their way back up through the ice, uh, drowning in the water because they can't get back up through the ice, and then the ones that do stick their heads above the water being stuck through with spears as Vaemon's men just throw spear after spear at them. It's a brutal, I mean, just an absolute killing field. Five yeah. men dead in the water. Uh, nobody even knows whether Steingrim dies by drowning or by spear. I mean, it's mm. that kind of chaos. And, uh, uh, and the survivors have to sort of limp away. Yeah, you know, in, in terms of, like, uh, scenes that you'd like to see in a movie, uh, mm-hmm. this one certainly is far more entertaining. Yes. You know? It's it's, but, really, uh, it's a dramatic moment. Um, that said, the, the bloodshed is a little disappointing in that Steingrim's men just fall in the river, and uh, and then they get the Well, some of them are it. killed. Well, one of them is killed by an axe to the chest. Another one is killed by a spear. That one is pretty cool. I imagine a slow motion falling back, a lot of ice breaking right. water, slow-mo, slow-mo. Right, lots of Ash. no. I would hope uh, not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you but know, a lot of high definition water splashing and ice breaking. That's cool. Sure, sure. Beards uh, getting wet. But I think uh, that <laughs> you know, uh, damp beards aside. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, poor Grim mm-hmm. on the island. Uh, it's hard to beat that. It is, you know. I, I, I understand Death that the Death by Grimm... exposure and midge bite is really hard to top. While not a a, uh, a light best bloodshed, it is uh, <laughs> it is a damn fine winner. We will uh, row the award out to the island and leave it by Grim. Something for him to look at while he waits. <laughs> body, body count. count. So the body count this time around was pretty straightforward, which is always a pleasant surprise. Well... Wait a minute, that is a surprise. Uh, didn't we come up it, with different what? numbers? Yes, we did, but, I mean, your count was wrong. On a lot of counts, actually, it was wrong. Hold on a minute. How was mine wrong? Well, because I, I came up with 51, and you had 52, so you were off by one. <laughs> oh! Your arrogance would be breathtaking if I didn't need my breath to laugh. 
Ooh. First of all, need I remind you that your original count was actually 48. Mm-hmm. You forgot to count the three Norwegians with their weapon nicknames, despite the fact that they were introduced, killed, and then buried. It's not like their deaths were hidden in a footnote somewhere. Okay, well, you know, I'd like to point out, first of all, that nobody in our listening audience would have known that until you brought it up. Well, that's why but, I brought uh, it up. <laughs> I know. Well, that, that's neither here nor there. My final count, admittedly after a brief reminder, was a solid 51, and that's yes. the right one. And mine was 52. Mm. Uh, the discrepancy arose over the death of Alfhild, a woman who'd been living with Skuta. Yeah, and if everyone's saying, who? Alfhild? Never heard of her. That's because she shouldn't count. She's not a character in the saga, and her death is reported as an aside. I mean, we run into this problem all the time, and we don't usually count randomly introduced people who are suddenly reported to have died. Alfhild is present, has been present, and has just died. The saga's, failure, uh, the saga's I, failure to mention but, her but, but, before but. this point does not mean she isn't there. We mm-hmm. count any number of deaths in this saga of people who aren't mentioned until they die. Farmhands, neighbors, random people who get in Scooter's way, and they all count. Well, first of all, that's not fair. Nearly everything in this saga is a quick mention that's reported in a fairly dispassionate and distanced tone. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd have to exclude most of the deaths if we did that. And second of all, when we count an offstage death like Vaymond, for example... Well, that just makes sense. Veyman actually plays a role in the saga. Farmhands that get killed kind of play a role, although I'm starting to see your point just a little bit, but I'm not going to cave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, news of the death is pretty important for Veyman, regardless of whether it's on screen or not. But uh, okay, no, uh, Alfield is not. Don't set up a straw man here. Notice I didn't argue against counting Veyman. I'm willing to accept offstage deaths when they're relevant. All right. So when they're relevant. And Alfhild's death is is not terribly relevant other than it clears a path conveniently for uh, the, the, the quest for a new wife. Well, that's at least as relevant as any number of dead farmhands, but we do need to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, unless you're ready to concede, uh, nope. that we'll just uh, have to split this one and say that there are either 51 deaths or 52, depending on whether you're Andy or any reasonable reader of the saga. Oh, uh, and, and, and let's not forget, uh, as we, we sometimes do, we've got to remember the animals. The oh, animals. yes. And this saga it was actually pretty kind to animals, but we did lose two oxen. <laughs> yes. Uh, these are the two oxen that Vaman basically stole from Steingrim. That's right. He, he claims that he wanted to give them as a gift to his uh, uncle, Oskil, but uh, his theft of the oxen results in the deaths of a few men, including Svart, Thorleaf, and one unnamed man, uh, whose death we did count, so, you know, <clears throat> I have a point. <clears throat> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and when Hrafen gallops off to get Steingrim, Vaman then chops the heads off the oxen uh, rather than let Steingrim get them. Vaman really is a despicable character, isn't he? He's despicable. Yeah, uh, he and Henthor have to be rivals for the title of most petty Icelander. Oh, John, they they may be <laughs> rivals, but there's no competition there. Henthor wins that one even with his chicken legs tied together. Uh, all right, so uh, 51 or 52 and two oxen. It's not bad for a body count. No, it's not. Now, hold on uh, before we finish this. Mm-hmm. I've got one more important bit of body count business to cover. Do you? What is it? Well, a long, long time ago, although not that that long ago, uh, one the of our listeners con- far, far away. <laughs> one of our list uh, one of our listeners contacted me about our approach to body count. Oh, I'm actually surprised we haven't had more people contacting us to complain. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of a mess when it comes to body count. I mean, we've got these rules, but I often wonder uh, whether we should just write them down because I'm not sure we know all of them ourselves. Oh, stop! I know all the rules, and I think they're pretty clear. I just. <laughs> I think that you you never pay attention to them. Oh, here's what I think. 
I think the guy who's on record as being incapable of counting units of measurement or doing straightforward single-digit multiplication probably shouldn't get snippy about which one of us has more trouble remembering rules. <laughs> I also think you should move this along and get to the listeners' comments before the body count for the saga suddenly goes up by one. Ooh, is that a threat from it's you, merely John? an observation, but please go on. <laughs> okay. Well, since you're so interested in measurements, that's exactly what this has to do with, and, and mm. I'm going to cover it. Um, this suggestion comes to us from Greg uh, way back in February. Uh-huh. And I responded to him a while ago, but never got around to implementing the idea. So I'm hoping to do that tonight. Um, he says this, I've listened to most of the episodes, and I want to thank you for making my workday go by more quickly, which is uh, very, very nice of him. I appreciate it. Thank you very that. much, Greg. Yeah. Um, And Greg has an interesting idea for us that might complicate things somewhat, but Mm -hmm. it would also provide for a more interesting point of comparison between the sagas that we cover. Okay. I'm intrigued. As you should be. I'm intrigued as well. Um, And that's why I'm sharing this. So uh, (laughs) Greg recommends that we include a deaths per page statistic in our body count. Very interesting. Yes, uh, I was thinking we could call it something like um, like a body count density measurement or a BCDM for short. What do you think? <laughs> BCDM. I don't know yeah. that an acronym is really necessary. It seems to make oh, it a little on. more uh, grandiose than it is. It's very but scientific. I, I, like, I like the idea. It does provide a different perspective for the body count report. Yeah, I agree. Uh, only creating a deaths per page ratio wouldn't really work because that number is going to change based on which translation we're using or another person's using. Uh, right. So the ICBM count or whatever it is for what? no, Greater no, no, Saga. No, no, no. What's that? Wait, hold on. Not ICBM. I don't know. That might be something from the 70s. We're talking about the BCDM. <laughs> uh, BCDM. Got it. Yes. Okay. Body count uh, density right. measurement. Right. Not intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, so the <laughs> BCDM for Greta's saga, for example, uh, would be completely different depending on which translation you were using. I mean, mm-hmm. Morris, Scudder, Paulson, Fox, Bayak are all going to have different page numbers. Exactly. But um, I want to say this. We do happen to have a very reliable and consistent measurement of saga length lying around that we could use instead. Ooh, are you thinking of Ravenkel's perchance? Oh, I am, I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, I know I know it's a silly measurement, but it does A silly measurement. Podcast. This is my day of glory. <laughs> our unit of measurement should therefore be a little bit silly. Um, so what do you say to a body count density measurement, or BCDM, that's derived from a deaths to Ravenkel's ratio? Oh, I think that's a brilliant idea. I thought I knew that the day of Ravenkels would come. <laughs> I really didn't, but uh, there you go. <laughs> Fate uh, works in mysterious ways. Okay, so uh, we've got fifty-one deaths in this saga, and mm-hmm. Rekdala saga 52. came in fifty-one, and Rekdala <laughs> came in at uh, two point six Ravenkels. That's right. And if I have done my math correctly, we oh, should. Oh dear, I might need to jump what? in here. No, 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 no. I got tag this. me in. <laughs> It's just basic division. I, I can handle it. I know. That's why I'm worried. Be quiet. Uh, <laughs> so here's here's what I've got. The BCDM for Reykdala Saga is 19.615, which which means that for every Hrofenkill in the saga, we've got 19.615 deaths. Uh, so we're going with three decimal places. Any particular reason? There is no reason at all. It's completely arbitrary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> would you prefer to just round up to a whole number or something? No, I like the percentages. Uh, I think we can just go to two de- two places beyond the decimal point, though. I mean, there's no need to get crazy. I mean, some of these may go on and on. <laughs> well, yeah, they definitely go on and on. But I thought three was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. makes it seem a little more serious. But uh, anyway, just for comparison, I did a BCDM for two other sagas that we've covered. And which ones are those? I chose Air Saga and mm. Fatenstala Saga. 
Now, I'll give you the Hroffenkel measurement for each, and you tell me which one you think has a higher BCDM. Okay. I think I like this game. Okay. Uh, so here we go. Erbig Saga was 4.3 Hroffenkels, uh-huh. and Vatensdale Saga was a bit shorter, coming in at 3.21 Hroffenkels. Um, so which one do you think had the higher body count density? Oh, uh, it's got to be Erbigia. I mean, that saga had the second highest body count so far, right? I distinctly remember it was over 100 dead. Uh, well, that's correct. It's a very good memory, Mr. Memory Man. Uh- <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, Airbridge Saga had uh, 101 deaths to Vatensdal Saga's 41 deaths. So mm-hmm. Airbridge Saga comes in with a body count density measurement of 23.48, and mm-hmm. Vatensdal is only a mere 12.72. This is very interesting. I, I like this plan because it's actually – I feel like this reflects more the sense you get of the uh, the rate of death when you're reading the saga. Absolutely. So, I mean, Vatensdal Saga, you know, this reveals that Vatensdal Saga might be a longer saga, but there mm-hmm. are more deaths per Hrofenkels in uh, a saga like Rekdala Saga. Right, right. Very interesting. Yeah. I like this plan. Thanks, Greg. Yes, and uh, I'm hoping this will, hope, uh, hopefully anyways, make the body count category a bit more interesting in the future. Gives us something to talk about. <laughs> uh, of course, now we're going to have to go back and recalculate all the sagas we've covered <laughs> to this point. But I say let's do it. Anything that makes the Hrofenkel a more important part of the podcast. <laughs> all right. All right, on to our next category. Nicknames. All right, now, uh, as I was reading this saga, I I noticed that there were a lot of nicknames. Mm-hmm. Um, would you concur, John? You know, I thought so, too. There aren't as many as you would think. Uh, there's Maybe only a over 30 in the saga. Well, it's a shorter saga, so, you yeah, know, that's, yeah. that's not too bad. Uh, but I would say they're disproportionately bizarre. Yes, yeah, I think maybe that's what I noticed more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nicknames popped out a lot more, like uh, Fishing Pole and Butter Ring, for example. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, enough of them demand our attention that I've had to make some brutal cuts. Um, hmm. We're going to be skipping over Thorstein Crag, Thorleaf Fox, Thorstein the Blind, Thorstein Bull Calf. There's a lot of Thorsteins. And the Norwegian brothers, Von Spear, Nafar Short Sword, and Skeffel the Sword. Now, those aren't as interesting, but I, I have it on good authority that um, Thorstein Crag was that the first mm-hmm. guy? Thorstein yeah, Crag? Yeah. Um, I, I have it on good authority that he has a very large posterior, um, <laughs> thus, thus the nickname. Are you serious? No. Um, okay, I just heard good. rumors about the bathhouse. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, that's charming. Uh, thank you for that contribution to nicknames. Uh, now, yeah, if I'll I just may. sit back now and let you take over. So I'm going to start off with uh, Killer Scooter and Killer Gloom. Okay. Uh, the nickname there is Vega. Uh, this is actually a pretty common nickname in the sagas, but it's unusual to see two men with the same nickname facing off against each other. Uh, both of these guys earn their name. Uh, Gloom kills repeatedly over the course of this saga, and his hatred of Thorberg Cheekstruck means that the second half of this saga is actually a three-way feud, with Gloom scoring kills against both of his enemy's supporters. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. Mm, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's an element of the saga that I really wish were kind of exploited more. Um, right. Maybe we should read uh, Viga Gloom's saga to uh, find out all the answers to that. Well, I believe we shall. Mm. Uh, so Scuda, on the other hand, is responsible directly or indirectly for over a dozen killings by himself. And let's not forget that he won our best bloodshed prize for staking poor Grim out on Raven Rock to die. Nice uh, move there. Which one is more deserving of the nickname? That, I think, is for the coroner to decide. <laughs> Next, we have Thorir Leatherneck. 
uh, or Leatherhals. Uh, this is exactly what it sounds like. A Thor's got a leathery neck. Uh, the reason I bring it up at all is that it suggests a reference to someone known for working in the sun, a neck browned and toughened like leather. Uh, and I find that interesting because Thor is the father of the Fjörlifersons, and their behavior throughout the saga suggests a certain kind of spoiled privilege to me, uh, while their father is a leathery, hardworking man. They're also significantly known by their mother's name rather than their father's name. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an interesting juxtaposition, but it's never addressed directly. Right? Thorir, as far as we can tell, is an absent father, and we don't learn anything about him. Speaking of his sons, uh, next one is Vaymund Fringe. Uh, what's meant here, the word is uh, kogur, uh, or kugur. Uh, it means fringe in the sense of a fringe of material on a blanket or some other cloth. Not a cooler, like, edge of the badlands kind of fringe. Uh, it has limited associations with a child's swaddling cloth. But I'm sort of suspecting that here it means uh, some article of clothing that Vaman wears. Which yeah. I have to say is disappointingly mundane for such a lunatic character. Well, I think, you know, he's got he's wearing, I'm guessing, slightly flashier clothes if it's got a, that could a very nice well little be. fringe to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he is a very proud individual, so that, that kind of suits him. That's a good point. Remember we saw with Berg the Bold, right, the, the fringed cloak that he then cuts the edge off of. That's right. As being considered an especially uh, flashy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorir Goatbeard, Gateskeggy. Uh, this is my requisite beard nickname for this saga, and it's a good one. Uh, I'm making the assumption here that Goatbeard is a physical descriptor rather than a zoomorphic reference to his character. Uh, a goat beard is a fairly distinctive looking thing. Right? That's why we English speakers call a goatee a goatee. It seems that Thorir's got a long, waggly beard, possibly worn along on his chin, but trimmed along his cheeks and jawline. It's probably not our winner, but I'm pleased to have old Goatbeard on board. Yeah. And in uh, Thor's defense, you know, some people just can't really grow uh, good hair on on their cheeks, you know? There's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) It's just just what happens. Oh, dear. Hmm? Uh, Absolutely right, Andy. That's right. right. And given that we uh, now know that we're going to be talking about a beardless man in the near future, we should probably uh, get used (laughs) to thinking these ways. Uh, Ingvild, everyone's sister. (laughs) Uh, this is one of those nicknames that's primarily worth pointing out because it's just so weird Uh, but it also reminds us that women often served as the social bridges between men male friendships Mm -hmm. and family ties were often traced through women and through marriage and a large clan was more or less unified based to a degree on the strength of those bonds a woman like Ingvild who is everyone's sister gives us one of those moments when the sagas hint at those complex social webs yes Uh, but in this case, she may just have a lot of siblings. Uh, <laughs> I hope that's not the reason. <laughs> uh, Eldjarn, Eldjarn the Generous, or Mildi. Uh, Eldjarn is that nice young man from Norway who marries Gloom's daughter Thorlog, despite the fact that she's already married to Killer Scooter. Uh, the English translation of the Generous doesn't really capture the full and almost saintly nature of Eldjarn's name. The Icelandic word mildi, uh, mildi can mean mercy or grace or kindness. Uh, it's, a, it's a cognate of the Anglo-Saxon word mildust, which is used to describe Beowulf at his funeral. The use here means that Eldjarn is the merciful, the kind, mm. or even the gracious. Now, is that the etymological origin of the word mild? Um, I believe it is, yeah. Although, obviously, the meaning has shifted a great deal over the centuries. Sure. Uh, the point here is that the name is meant to refer to his generous character 
rather than his donations to charity. Okay. Uh, it sets him up as the polar opposite of the name Killer Scooter, or for that matter, his new father-in-law, Killer Gloom. Mm. All in all, it's probably best that the newlyweds fled to Norway right after their wedding. A guy like Eldjar and the Gracious probably wouldn't survive long after cuckolding a man named Killer Scooter. That's right. Get out of town. <laughs> uh, Orm the Grumbler, or Rela. Uh, this isn't worth spending a ton of time on. I just like it. Some yeah, of these names too. are just interesting glimpses into a world in which people use nicknames as identifiers. And it gives me a chuckle to think of a slightly cranky guy whose neighbors all think of him as the Grumbler. Uh, <laughs> it's like a looking into your future. Well, oh, well, I want to also remember that this guy, and I'm going to ignore that, uh, this guy does hang on to a lawsuit over half a mark of silver owed to him. Oh, nice. It, it suggests that he might be a bit of a sullen fellow prone to holding on to minor grudges. Mm-hmm. Thorbird Cheekstruck, or Hogvinkini. Uh, this is definitely one of the shaming nicknames, like Twistleg, or for that matter, Henthor. Uh, this is actually an inversion of Kino Hogvik, uh, which means to strike a blow on the cheek. Thorberg's nickname refers to an event in this saga during the fight with Killergloom, when Thorfinn Arnerson lands a blow yes. on him. That blow is never compensated. In the settlement, the blow is balanced against Thorberg's fault in provoking the fight. So his nickname is a reminder that he received a blow, which he never paid back. For shame, Thorberg. Thorstein Fishing Pole. I know this is a favorite of yours. Uh, I was really intrigued by this one, too, uh, because everything I've read suggests that fishing in medieval Iceland was conducted almost entirely by net fishing, not pole fishing. And once I looked into it, it turns out the term literally means stick or, you know, pole in the sense of a pole, Mm -hmm. a staff. Uh, which means that this apparently refers to some kind of a hooked pole used for retrieving a fishing net or trap from the water. Okay. Uh, since most fishing was done from ships, that makes sense. It doesn't tell us why this well-known dueling champion is named for a fishing tool, but I'm not a miracle worker. I can only go with what we've got here. <laughs> That's good enough. Uh, Arnor Crone's nose. <laughs> Kerlingarneth. Who would have thought that a saga with Kettle Flatnose in it would have an even better nose nickname? Yeah. Arnor gets around in the sagas. Uh, he shows up in some of the better-known Thotter, especially Bully Bolison's tale, and he's featured in Lockstall's saga. And everywhere he goes, his crone's nose precedes him. <laughs> Technically, the name Kerlingarnef, uh is more neutral than the English translation, but it still means old woman's nose. Uh, okay. But I tend to read that as being in the sense of a gossip. Uh, since older women are proverbial in the sagas for their love of chatter. So there may not be anything odd about his actual physical nose. Arnor is possibly just a bit of a water-cooler gossiper. Hmm. Thorod the Grinder. Harthjaxl. Uh, as I said during the summary of the saga, Thorod's name isn't a reference to his dance technique. The <laughs> English translation of Grinder evokes the <laughs> whale-hunting method of the grind, or the grind. But we'll be talking about the Grind uh, in more detail at a future point. Okay. Thorod's name is meant to indicate his gritty character. It's not actually a reference to whaling. Uh, the first half of his name is the same as the nickname of King Harald Harthrada, right? Harald the Hard Dealer, so hard. Yaxil refers to a tooth, uh, the molar specifically. So the literal meaning is hard tooth, but the implication is that Thorod is a tough customer. On the other hand, he only appears for one battle in the saga, and he gets killed during it. So the name may be a bit of a misnomer. Hmm, interesting. And Thorgir Butterring. 
Oh, my favorite. Now we're getting to the main attraction. Uh, <laughs> Thorgir is a man of limited intellect and virtually no common sense. But, but he's by, really good with a sheep's head on a pole. He absolutely is. And by God, he knows what he likes. And he likes butter rings. <laughs> uh, now, in modern Scandinavian baking, Andy, butter rings are a kind of cookie or pastry. And they look delicious. Um, mm. In fact, my mother used to make little cookies she called cream cheese rings. Okay. And she was German, so presumably they've enjoyed some popularity outside the Vikings' lands. Well, I would love to try a butter ring. Oh, they're delicious. But the text also tells us that Thorgir, quote, thought no food was as good as bread and butter. There you go. Uh, so presumably the reference is to a kind of ring bread, which might be a kind of circular braided bread. And Thorgir's not the only one with a nickname based on his love of dinner rolls, by the way. There's also an Einar buttered bread in 10th century Orkney, who's a grandson of Thorfinn the Skull Splitter. But if that's the case, it still wouldn't be anything like the bread you're probably imagining right now, because bread in this era in Iceland was unleavened and was fire-baked, not oven-baked. Uh, there are a few kinds of bread that might have been made, so Thorgir's preference might be for either a kind of stone-cooked flatbread, uh, a pan-cooked wheat or rye biscuit, or a heavy hearth bread cooked in a fire's ashes. In any case, uh, bread wasn't necessarily a daily staple, so Thorgir does actually have somewhat extravagant tastes. Well, maybe he just likes to eat butter. Well, possibly. It's just a conveyance. Uh, yeah. I actually went and found a recipe for hearth bread uh, this weekend, just to get an idea of what Thorgir might have liked. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll put the recipe up online if anyone else wants to try it. It's not bad, but I have to say that Thorgir's right. It's better with butter on it. <laughs> uh, or maybe some honey and cheese, if you like that sort of thing. Okay. So uh, what do you think? Who's our winner? Well, okay. So there are three candidates here okay. that are legit. We've got uh, Thorstein Fishing Pole. Mm -hmm. Great choice. Um, Ingvild Everyone's Sister. It's <laughs> a great I, name. I'm, I'm fascinated by that one. And obviously Thorgir Buttering. Um, as much as I would love to give it to Ingvild Everyone's mm -hmm. Sister... I'm not the kind of guy that's going to turn down Thorgir Buttering. I don't think anyone can turn down Thorgir Buttering. I don't even think this is a contest. I feel I almost felt bad coming up with all these different discussions of nicknames, knowing that Thorgir was waiting at the end of the line. Well, we know how you love to waste everyone's time. So, oh, now, so we no. agreed. Thorgir Buttering, oh, it is definitely, definitely. He's he's a, a champion of nicknames. <laughs> Excellent. It's <laughs> the only thing he's champion of. Well, notable, notable witticisms. witticisms. All right, so Andy, I think uh, you're going to start us off in this category. What do you got? Okay, so uh, my first one here is pretty simple, but it does carry huge repercussions in the saga. Uh, okay. It comes from Chapter 16 when Oskel, Hals, and Vaymund are riding along through Eyjafjord uh, when they spot Steingrim and his men coming away from the hot spring baths. Now, Hals then turns to Vaymund and says with a snide look on his face, Steingrim keeps on trying to wash off the dishonor he got when you had him struck with a sheep's head. But it's going to be a long struggle before he gets it all washed off. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, there are huge repercussions for this. Uh, remember that Oskel is angry because he fears that Hall's voice may have carried across the river to Steingrim. And, in fact, it does. Uh, while the line mm -hmm. is a clever reinforcement of Steingrim's shame for the sheep tapping given to him by old Thorgir <laughs> Buttering, the insult ends up costing Oskel his life. True. And Steingrim also dies with several of his men. Mm -hmm. So... This little witticism was a costly one. Yeah, I almost, I almost feel bad for Steingrim, but but only almost. I mean, to be honest, I never really cared about him at all. Uh, so, uh, what's wow, your, what's your first candidate? Wow, you're just gonna let that sit there. Yeah, that's it. Uh, 
My first example comes from actually pretty late in the saga. Uh, this okay. is an episode toward the end of the Killer Gloom Killer Scooter feud. Mm. As Scooter is trying to escape from Gloom's men, he uses the old Bugs Bunny routine of quick changing by turning his cloak inside out. Bugs Bunny routine, huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Bugs did it all the time. Uh, Scooter then pranks his pursuers with a bit of wordplay. When they run up, he tells them that he saw Scooter riding away along that hillside over there. Mm-hmm. When they somewhat suspiciously ask him his name, he responds, I am called many in Mivaten, but few in Fishkalek. They, for some reason, accept that as an answer, and he rides away. Uh, it's not until the men report to Gloom that the joke is revealed, such as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scooter's name means cave, and there are a lot of those in Mivaten, but... Not as many in the Fiskalek area. Yeah. Uh, did we change his accent there or his uh, his voice? I feel like no, was... he's, he's missing teeth. We just... Oh, that's right, that's right. We had <laughs> I had trouble doing that. Okay. Um, uh, anyway, it's a, it is a strange joke, but it's an interesting one. A very specific reference. Uh, presumably requires a local's knowledge of the area. Uh, I, I mean, unless we are supposed to believe that Mivaten is famous all over for its caves rather than for its clouds of black flies. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of reasons I'm bringing this one up. One is that the misdirection, coupled with a pun that isn't explained till later, is absolutely typical of the trickster and outlaw traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, up to this point, Scooter hasn't given us the slightest hint that he's a trickster figure. The closest thing he, to a gag he's pulled so far was to tie Grimm naked on a fly-infested island and leave him to die. Mm. But somehow, a thread of the trickster tradition makes its way into the saga here. It's actually more entertaining to me for being so out of place. It's really a random bit of cartoon humor in this saga that's so sorely lacking in witty lines. That's true. Uh, oh, and there's one more thing about this. It actually, it does mean that Scooter's name with his nickname attached means Killer Cave. Mm-hmm. And that's a really impressive name. That sounds like someplace you'd go on Halloween. I always I appreciate good names, so there you I go. I would think you would have mentioned that in the uh, nickname section. Well, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I, I do like that one, but uh, I think you missed an even better one from earlier in that same chapter, that same scene. Oh, uh, which one? Well, you remember the situation, right? So Scooter uh, initially spots Gloom riding up along the valley wearing a big green cape, and he, he wants to go catch him. Right. Uh, this is where we learn that Scooter's got that fancy reversible black and white cloak. Exactly. So anyway, Scooter traps Gloom in a shieling, um, and then Scooter has his sword fly with him, but Gloom finds himself unarmed. And this prompts. Wait, now Gloom- we're back to now, now we're back to it being a sword. Yeah, it's just, oh, is it? Did Schrodinger's, did Schrodinger's weapon come out as a sword this time? It did, it did. I forgot. Yeah. In fact, you know, the, the author allows for it to be either a sword or an axe. So in this right. case, I'm going sword. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I forgot about that. Anyway, this, this, uh, prompts Gloom to say that there would not be much question which of them were the better fighter if they were both armed. But given the circumstances, he declares, I'm not about to run out onto your weapon. Well, it's a good point and it's a good line. Yeah, it is. Uh, but it's not the one that I want to use here. I'm, I'm, ah. sneaking, I'm kind of sneaking that one in. <laughs> the witticism, mm-hmm. the actual witticism is coming up. So remember that Gloom then ran away and he ran straight to the nearby gully. And Scooter was in hot pursuit mm-hmm. and saw Gloom dive down into the gully. But he tried to follow, uh, but Scooter couldn't find an easy way down. Suddenly he spots uh, Gloom's green cape drifting down at the bottom of the gully. So he makes his way down and thrusts his spear straight through the cape. And that's when he hears a voice from up above say, Not much credit in spoiling people's clothes. 
Yeah, that's the line. Yes, it is. This this is just classic, and it is kind of uh, Bugs Bunny esque. Uh, but I, I, I kind of imagine him as a smug Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, looking on Gloom's. Uh, uh, I, I kind of imagine him as a smug, as a smug Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, looking at uh, old Scooter down there, standing on the ledge <laughs> from above. Uh, it's a great scene, and it's a great line. Excellent. Uh, and while we're on the subject, I'd like to include Gloom's poem just a few lines later. Oh, okay. You know, well, as long as we are sticking with the gloom scooter confrontation, I suppose it does make sense to include the only verse in the entire poem. Uh, yeah, and this is another bit of outlaw-esque writing from our author. Mm-hmm. So right after that clothes gag, uh, Scooter mocks Gloom with the taunt, Now you've got this to remember, Gloom, that you've run away and not dared to wait for Scooter. Now, leaving aside Scooter pulling a Mr. T move by referring to himself in the third person, <laughs> I pity the Scooter's gloom. got a point. But, you know, as we said during the episode, both of these guys are too smart to try to make an unarmed stand against an armed foe. Oh, definitely. So, Gloom, saying that he'll make Scooter run before the day's out, then speaks a half-verse. It's worth a piece of silver, each bush south of the river. The wide woods often cover, outlaw and wolf together. It's really an outlaw story motif, with the reference to the green wood for outlaws to hide in and so forth. Uh, but I'm mainly including it because it deserves recognition as a slightly clever response to Scooter's taunt. But I have to say only slightly clever. It's probably not a winner. Have you got anything else? You, you know, here's the thing, John. We just mm-hmm. covered three different lines from the same chapter. And all of them, they, they are pretty good candidates, but... Yeah, I guess. So what's the problem? Well, well, you don't find it a little bit odd that all the best lines are in one chapter of this saga? Oh, uh, I think I know where you're going with this. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, then by all means, if you know what I'm going to say, say it for me. <laughs> Save me the oh, breath. Oh, see? Um, well, you're, I think you're planning to point out that this chapter of Rekdala Saga, which is the 26th chapter, mm-hmm. is identical to chapter 16 of Killer Gloom Saga. That is exactly what I was going to say. You read your introduction. Uh, yeah, <laughs> You know, we've mentioned before that this author doesn't like to use direct discourse, and mm-hmm. his narrative style tends to be pretty dry all around. It's an unusual chapter. Right, and this chapter sticks out like a sore thumb in the saga. Mm-hmm. It's dynamic, it's full of action. I shouldn't even say a sore thumb, it sticks out like a good thumb on a sore body. It's, <laughs> it's witty, it's got a cool poem, it's got clever dialogue. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly not the work of the rectile author. <laughs> no, uh, you know, so, so I don't know if that means we've got a problem for our notable witticism category mm-hmm. or not. I mean, right now, we've only got one candidate from the actual saga. Right. You know, that's kind of sad. So I'll try to correct that by throwing in another quick one. Okay. So this one comes from chapter 18, where Thorberg Cheekstruck convinces the three Norwegian brothers, Vagen Spear, Navar Shortsword, and Skefil Sword, to uh, come home with him rather than wait for Gloom to show up as they had agreed. Right. Uh, They're friends of Gloom's and had arranged to stay with Gloom and his father, Giri. Mm -hmm. But Gloom and Giri are so busy that they couldn't meet the Norwegians at the harbor that day and bring them down to the farm. Yeah, and, and so it's part of Thorberg's plan to make Gloom look bad to the Norwegians so that they'll come home with him instead, thus mm-hmm. shaming uh, Gloom and ruining his reputation. Now, he tells mm-hmm. the brothers that Gloom and Geri simply don't have the means for taking in freeborn men for whom it matters how they're treated. Which is pretty insulting. Oh, it's very insulting. But, but then he goes on to kind of rub it in. He says, That father and son are so badly off that when the first bite is eaten... The second is nearly finished. 
Now, you know, I know that's a proverb, uh, but it's cleverly used here. And it works. I mean, the Norwegians do end up going home with Thorberg. Yeah. So, you know, the question remains. We've got two actual candidates from the actual saga, <laughs> presumably written by the saga author, and then mm-hmm. three really good ones, which are definitely not written by the saga author. So how do we decide this one? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, oh, well, I think we have to say that um, the verse is not a winner. So we're really down to two and two. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say Halls' line isn't actually very clever. It's it's significant in the saga, but yeah. it's not a terribly clever line. I'm going to agree with you. That was a reach, but I was trying to include something from the saga. Uh, so I guess the question we have before us is whether the first bite is eaten and the second is nearly finished is sufficiently clever for us to stick to our guns and say that we can only use the Rectal author's actual words. Mm, that is an interesting dilemma. And... I'm inclined to say that's what we should do, um, mm-hmm. but I also have a feeling that when we read Viga Gloom Saga, that uh, we're going to find that there are plenty more fun lines to work with in Notable Witticisms, sure. and maybe sure. we could double up and reward one here. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, the question before us is, you know, what is a saga? Yeah. Is it what is now read as the saga, or is it what was originally written by the author? Mm. That is a good and question. That's, you know, that's a, a deep and complex question that we could spend a lot of time on, but I don't want to. No, me neither. Uh, so what do you want to do here? So I think we need to just say that the saga is what the saga is, right? It's what we read. It's what a modern reader reads when they read the saga. Yeah. Uh, we don't we don't insist on sticking to any one manuscript tradition when we have more than one manuscript to work from. Uh, so I don't have a problem with moving into the stuff that's been seeded in from other places. Okay. So um, do you have a preference on this one? Well, now, see, now, having said that, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, I mean, that's the funny thing. I don't really have a strong preference either, which I think speaks to the, uh, you know, uh-huh. the whole problem of this saga. Well, you I know, just don't we've have said before, here. We've, we've considered before the possibility of not awarding a category. Do we feel like we've finally gotten to that point and we found a, a saga oh, so no, lacking? I mean, I mean, the, there are a couple of witty lines here. Um, I honestly, I think in terms of true wit, um, th- there's two choices here. Oh, there's three really, but I on. would say, um, the line that you threw in as a red herring, uh, I'm not about to run out onto your weapon is actually a pretty good line. You know, <laughs> I, I kind of <laughs> like that one too. You know what? Uh, let's just be silly and give it to, uh, gloom for I'm not going to run out onto your weapon, That's even though I didn't a write in that. candidate as it were. Yeah. It was a dark All right, horse. excellent. Okay. Excellent. Well done, Gloom. Outlawry. Now, I don't really think there's much question about who should be outlawed here, though I'm sure that you're going to try to throw a wrench into things like you always do. Oh, I might have a, a minor wrench to throw, but go ahead and get no. us started. You and your wrenches. Um, well, I, I've got two candidates, but I, I'm only going to consider – well, actually, I'll consider both of them. <laughs> That's why I have two candidates. Oh, yes, um, but so I'm the I'm one with s- the wrenches. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I thought that one was better than the other, but now that I think about it, I think they're kind of even. So I'm going to start off with Vaymond, the wayward nephew of Oskil. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm not going to list out his crimes, though most <laughs> of them are quite petty. They're ridiculous and downright shameful. Right. No, um, it speaks to how long, how many there are that we would have to basically read the first half of the saga to get all of his crimes. Yeah, exactly. He's basically going around trying to cheat everyone out of their goods mm-hmm. uh, at all times and just generally causing problems. Now, it doesn't matter how many times his uncle comes to rescue him, uh, how many times uh, Oskil establishes a settlement in his favor or or uses political influence to save Vayman's life. 
I mean, this Veyman's always up to no good. And if and if you listen to the first summary episode, then you know exactly why he should be outlawed. <laughs> Heck, everyone, everyone tried to outlaw him time and time again, but mm-hmm. they never managed to get the job done. And so I think we'd be within reason if we were to reach back into the text from 2016 and serve <laughs> up a bit of Saga Thing justice. Wow. Mm. Uh, well, that's a strong case. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think there needs to be some competition here. And I think we do have to seriously consider Thorer Kettleson, a.k.a. Thorer Flatnose. Oh, oh, come on. Now, wait a minute. For starters, is that name. Is this guy the son of Kettle Flatnose or isn't he? That should The saga matter. says he's Flatnose's son, but we all we know uh, is that he says this. Kettle Flatnose, we know all his kids and none of them are named Thorer. Then the saga says that he's named Flatnose. But no one by that name is known anywhere else in the sagas. You want to outlaw him because he's a, no, 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 a no. an invention of the saga author? I'm establishing his bona fides. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm assuming there's some kind of fraud going on here is my point. But his crimes are that he is responsible for killing not one but two chieftains in this saga. Oh, now that's more serious. And he's outlawed from two different districts before he finally gets killed by Skuta, which was probably the only thing that would stop his lawless rampage. I actually think he's a reasonably good candidate. And remember, he's the one who kills the saintly Oskal. That's true. That's very true. Although I would say he um, he does get killed by Skuta. So, you know, the problem resolves itself in the saga. I, I, I'm more interested in people that... Uh, I think you're jumping wrong. ahead to our decision-making process. Oh, sorry. Let me go with my second candidate. Now, this one might be more deserving of outlawry. Uh, Thorberg Cheekstruck. He emerges as the more deadly but equally conniving villain of the saga's second half. He's one of Killer Skuta's most significant enemies. Um, not only is he an element of chaos in the region, not unlike Vaymund in the mm-hmm. first half of the saga, but Thorberg is responsible for so many failed assassin plots <laughs> that he, he simply deserves outlawry just for not figuring out how to, how to get the job done right after the first six tries. <laughs> in many ways, he's more despicable than Vaymund, if only because not only does he, he do the petty things, but he does more violent crimes and mm-hmm. he has more power and more natural ability. So, so, you know, that's what I've got. Those are my two candidates. You go ahead and throw this wrench that I, I have a feeling you're about to throw. Come on. Muck up the works with your nonsense. No, no, no. no. It's not mucking up the works. Although I, I do have just one more option. I know you do. Go Throughout ahead. this saga, there's a man involved with one failed plot after another. Mm-hmm. One man who hires more assassins, breaks more peace deals, and plots more ambushes than any other. I think you're exaggerating a little bit. I think you know who I'm talking about, Andy. It's your newest thingman, Thordir the Gothi. For a guy you touted (laughs) last time as being a wonderful man and a steal as thingman, he certainly is a nefarious troublemaker in this saga. Andy, I have to ask you, when one of Thordir's many, many plots failed, and he then refused to lift a finger to help his friend Grimm, who was trapped and dying out on Hraven Rock, do you think he lost even a moment's sleep over his betrayal? Or is that cold-hearted treachery something that you actually approve of in a thingman? <laughs> That's mighty rich coming from someone who supports <laughs> Snorri Gothi. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. I've already said my piece on uh, the status of <laughs> Thorgir Gothi in this saga, the fictionalized version of uh, Thorgir. So oh, we're not even going to consider That's him. That's what we're He's going not- with. He's not a legit candidate, nor is your first one in terms of, you know, your complaints about who he is. I mean, the saga author is very clearly inventing things just for some kind of credibility. 
No, so, I think, uh, no, I mean, have, having seriously. the candidates laid out in front of us like this, I think it's fairly clear. Um, you know, just the fact that, as you pointed out, we would have to essentially reread out loud the first half of this saga just to list all of Veyman's crimes. Yeah. To me, he's a pretty solid candidate. Well, you know, I th- I thought so at first, but the more I thought about Thorberg Cheekstruck, the more I wanted to outlaw him. Um, and I would also point out that Thorberg Cheekstruck, uh, he lives through the end of the saga. Never gets killed, never gets a comeuppance, just goes <laughs> off into the sunset. Well, That's we're not, not, we're not vigilantes, Andy. We're here to administer oh. justice. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> uh, I, and I would point out that Veyman dies peacefully in his own bed and never actually yeah. has to deal with the shame of his actions. Oh, so we're going to resurrect him and, and send him out? <laughs> if that's your concern. Hey, Oliver Cromwell was tried after his death. Why can't, uh, why can't Veyman yeah. be? All right. You know what? Because Veyman is so ridiculous. I mean, Thorberg is a kind of a standard stock saga character. Yeah. Um, I'm going to forgive him this time, though. My, my oh, I'm not forgiving says, him. No, no, no. I'm saying uh, I, my better judgment says we should outlaw him, but uh, Vaymond is – he's got that Henthor quality that just mm-hmm. says outlaw me. So <laughs> let's do it. Off you go, fringe boy. Big man. All right. Now we come to uh, what I know is Andy's favorite part of the judgment episode. Uh, eh, not this, this is time. where each of us – well, this is where each of us chooses a uh, a man or a woman from the saga to join – our Ooh. growing band of Thingmen to join us in our halls. Um, I went first last time, so Andy, for better or for worse, you get first pick from Rekdala Saga. Take it away. It's very interesting. I'm glad you said woman because Ingvild, everyone's sister, seems like a very good person to have on your side, doesn't <laughs> That's it? a good point. She's got a lot of friends. Yeah, you know, it didn't occur to me uh, reading the saga, but uh, you know, now that I think about it. She would be good. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you know, I um, I know we talked about this kind of when you went first on Finn Bogey Saga, and I was wondering why you chose to go first. Um, and now you know. Now that, now that I've read Rekdala Saga, I understand, because <laughs> it's one of those problems of, you know, there's really not a lot of candidates to choose from. Um, I think it comes down to Oskel or Killer Skuta, because there's so much focus on a lot of negative characters in the, in the saga. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I'm left with a dilemma. I, I'm not particularly moved towards either one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Oskel, I would say, uh, he fits the characteristics of the kind of guy that I like to choose. I mm-hmm. like to choose the wise ones. I like to choose men with noble characters. Um, Is that what you tell yourself? In- influence and power. That's what I've always told myself. And I think I follow through on that usually. But uh, my problem with Oskel is this. Oskel doesn't actually accomplish his goals. Um, he He's a good, loyal uncle. He takes care of his nephew. But in the end, he never solves the problem. Um, he never controls his nephew, influences his behavior in any significant way. Mm-hmm. That's disappointing to me. And equally disappointing to me is the fact that Oskel, uh, he's not really in the saga. He just kind of shows up and we get the report of him creating settlements he doesn't do much hmm. in the saga. He's not an, a, a living character. Skuta, on the other hand, is more alive in the saga, though not much. Um, and I, I think this time around, I'm uh, I'm running low on bruisers. <laughs> and <laughs> you've got your Gretters and your your other um, kind of violent characters, and I need someone who can contend with them a little bit. And and Skuta's that kind of guy. He's intelligent. Mm-hmm. He's wise. He's good with a sword. So. I'm going to take wow. Scooter this time around. Wow. That's a 
that's quite a pick. That is a uh, that is a slightly surprising pick, uh, given the kind of person Scuta is. Uh, I'm not surprised you've taken him, given the kind of person he is. Uh, but I'm surprised that you're pretending it's a good thing. I'm uh, not sure what you're trying to imply, given the fact that I know you would have taken Scuta had I taken Oscar. But not true, ahead. actually. Uh, Ooh. You've done a good job of summarizing the pros and cons of both Oscar and Scuta. Um, and I think you've, uh, and so I'll be brief. I think you've actually made a good argument for why I wouldn't have taken either one of them. Um, Ooh, you're gonna pull, uh, you're gonna pull a, uh, a minor character out of the saga. Not a minor gonna, character at all. It? I think, uh, I think as you look back at the saga, you'll realize that there are a number of other characters who are fairly major figures. Uh, and if we I cast, suspected you might do this. If we cast our minds back to the first half of this saga, Oscar the Gothi has a friend and partner he relies on over and over again to help him negotiate one piece after another. Even in the is face- Is this guy also in, uh, uh, Finn Bogey saga? He's around. Yes, he is. Does his uh, name begin with E? Yes, it does. Um, hmm. and he relies on this friend even in the face of the provocations of Oscar's obnoxious nephews. His friend, as you have surmised, is Eolf Valgerdison. And he's repeatedly hmm. shown to be Oscar's equal in creating settlements. But unlike Oskel, Eolf's willing to use every weapon in the Chieftain's arsenal to maintain a sense of justice and fair play. Andy, I'm sure you'll recall that Christney's saga, uh, the saga of the conversion of Iceland, lists Eolf as being one of the three greatest chieftains of Iceland at the end of the 10th century. I think Thorger uh, uh, plays a big role well, in that, too. Well, I don't believe he's listed as being one of the three greatest chieftains of Iceland at the end of the 10th century. Uh, mm. He's also one of the strongest voices for conversion, making him the epitome of both the proto-Christian of the Icelandic 10th century and the early adopter Christians ushering in a new era of law and justice in the 11th. He's also the descendant of Helgi the Lean and the father of Goodman the Powerful. He's a force for peace throughout most of this saga, a friend and peer of the saintly Askel. He's a mover, a shaker, a blood taker, and a peacemaker, and he's my new thingman. Take a bow, Eolf Valgerdison. You'll forgive me if I'm not impressed. You see, oh, I think I'm you should be very impressed. I would encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of your Rekdala Saga Ok Killer Skuta and uh, check out how many pages Eolf Algerdesen appears on. Nearly every one times... in the first half of the saga. I think no, check out how many times he actually mm. is physically on the screen and does repeatedly, anything. routinely and at the I think what conclusion and resolution is... of every struggle. There he is, speaking for Steingrim's side, and being a friend to Oskel when no one else will be. I would characterize my emotional response to your selection as <laughs> disappointment. Oh, green with envy. I'm disappointed in you. I'm, I, for one, am very pleased with my choice. That's because you like... Well, I, we're not going to keep arguing, but you, you have taken liberties, my friend. I have not. Liberties. Anyone who reads the saga is going to agree with me. You're just counting on the fact that nobody's going to read this damn saga. <laughs> uh, who's got access to it? <laughs> now, shall we move on to final judgments? Final, final rating. rating. Now, uh, I think it's your turn to go first with final judgments, so I'm going to turn it over to you, John. Let us know kind of okay. what you think of this saga. Give it a score. Oh, God, where to begin? Um, mm. Look, I'm going to lay my cards out right away. Uh and I think I've laid them out over the course of our four hours plus talking about the saga. This is not a great saga. I know I've shocked you there, so I'll explain myself. Uh, it's got some real problems with pacing. Its authorial voice routinely raises questions about its own authenticity. 
it's repetitive and it's probably more than a little revisionist. It's, it's very hard to get a sense of the character of almost anyone in the saga, partly because the author is strangely resistant to dialogue, which we talked about just a little while ago. We had to cheat a bit even in order to get the limited dialogue we did offer during the summary episodes. Entire chapters go by in this saga with all the dialogue being reported secondhand. That's understandable and maybe even laudable from an historical perspective, but it puts a serious crimp in the usual flow of a saga narrative. Uh, Andy, you and I talked a bit about being able to use this saga to look at the narrative logic of feud culture. And reading Rekdala has inspired us to put together a short saga brief on that. It'll be coming up in the next few weeks. But while it's true that this saga rewards a narrative-based reading, it's mainly true because the narrative lays its agenda so bare that we can't help but see the stitches that hold the story together. When I finished reading this, I didn't feel that I'd read a saga so much as a saga draft. Now... I feel the same way. I'm enough of a saga nerd that Rekdala is fascinating to me for all the reasons I'm talking about. I'm especially intrigued by that rough draft quality. I think the idea that this saga represents an unfinished and unpolished saga in its protean form raises some great questions, especially for the book prosist argument that the sagas are writerly compositions from an early stage in their development. The problem is I don't buy it for a second. This is not a draft. It is first and last a saga written by someone who's probably not entirely confident in what they're doing. That's not a deal-breaker. I felt similarly about a couple of the Warrior Poet sagas, but those offered compensatory pleasures. Vivid descriptions, clever poetry, interesting female characters, exciting travel, you name it. Rekdala, by contrast, offers redundant plots, limited characterization. I think you were absolutely right that neither Skuda nor Askel really jumps off the page, and they're supposed to be our heroes. Virtually no consistent sense of space outside of major sites in the storyline. Remember we talked at one point about how abroad is just this one port somewhere where you travel to when you leave Iceland. There are plot elements in this saga that ought to be amazing. The the three-way feud between Skuta, Gloom, and Thorberg Cheekstruck should have made for great storytelling. Instead, it's so ignored that it was only on my second read-through that I even pieced together why Skuta's enemies couldn't just team up to crush him. And don't get me started on the frustrations of that missing section of the end. It still drives me nuts. Now, this saga's got its little treats. I mean, I don't think I'll ever get rid of the image of the dunderheaded Thorgir butter ring crashing through a crowd of people with a severed ram's head under one arm, shouting for help while Steingrim runs him down. But ultimately, this is a saga for saga nerds and completionists. I've struggled with a rating for this one. I really have. But in the end, I don't think I can go above a 3.5. I said it before, and I'll say it again. This is not a great saga. It's worth a read for some enjoyable moments, but it's got some real limitations as an example of the saga writer's art. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think you've said most of what I wanted to say, actually. So maybe maybe I can wrap it up very very quickly, at least quickly. Feel free, um, but not that quick. <laughs> so I, I'll just say this: you know, my first impression of the saga was not favorable mm-hmm. at all. Uh, the characterizations are extremely weak. The writing is too vague, it, or at least too disinterested in what's going on. Um, but but that could be an intentional effect. I'll be generous and assume that the author may be going for a tone that lends itself to historical veracity. But I don't buy that either, uh, <laughs> even if I appreciate the attempt at doing that. Uh, the real failure is in the author's inability to take advantage of the material he's collected. And it, it seems like he's collecting stuff at this stage. The two heroes of the saga, Oskil and Skuta are little more than shadow figures. Uh, although I would say uh, Eolf Fulgerson <laughs> is even more of a shadow figure. 
almost I as disagree. if he's barely in the saga. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> Oskil's not a huge character. Um, so I don't get why the few scholars who do talk about Rekdala Saga put him on such a pedestal. But I went over that in the theme section, so I'm not going to dwell on it here. My initial impulse is to score the saga very, very low. But the more we dug into the saga, I have to say, the more we teased out these various threads of the developing feuds, the more I began to appreciate something of the author's ability to weave together a fairly complex narrative. And if you're curious about how regional feuds in saga literature work and how they evolve and all the components of the feud, then Rekdala Saga does a pretty good job. But I'd also say that there are far better sagas out there to explore that same subject. I don't need to name one. Just pick a saga and you'll typically find it. And and it will be more likely a more entertaining read as well. Mm. So I, I want to give this saga a three because, like you said, it, it feels more like a draft than a complete saga. But after our discussions and after I read Aryan's lovely assessment of the saga, I found myself and my resolve weakening, mm. um, as sometimes happens with me. <laughs> so in honor of Aryan, I'm giving this a one point bonus. Uh, Rek Dalla Saga, you're getting a four from me. There you go. A three and a half from me and a four from Andy. Yeah. Well, that about does it for this saga. We'll be back in a few weeks or so with a saga brief about Jesse Bayok's theory of feudemes, which uh, should help shed some light on the structure and narrative development of saga literature. Exactly, yes. Uh, and as I said, Rick Dalla Saga got us thinking about the various discussions of feud in the Icelandic sagas out there, and we thought it a great opportunity to share some of those with you. Um, so don't be surprised, John, if I end up throwing some uh, William Ian Miller at you in the Feudim's Brief. Oh, by all means. Exciting. The more Icelandic scholars, the merrier, I say. Now, I believe we we're planning to record this one live when we see each other at Kalamazoo in a few weeks. Is that right? That's the plan. Uh, but we've made that plan before and never quite pulled it off. Mm. All the same, I think we can do it this time around, though. Well, and then after a very brief hiatus, we will return with our summer saga. Ah, uh, that's right. Uh, we're very excited to be tackling the saga of the people of Floy this summer. And <laughs> thanks to all our listeners who voted for it, we're going to have a blast. Oh, now that's just cruel. Poor <laughs> Team Floamana putting all their effort into trying no, to get that no, one up. No, no, no. Obviously, we're kidding. After a fierce battle between Team Ale and Team Njal, the people have chosen and decided on Njal's saga for our summer saga. Yes, it was It was actually really close, John, and I, I thought mm-hmm. Team Ale had it at the end there. The vote literally went into the final hour of the final day with the two of them tied. It's amazing. Team Ale staged an impressive comeback over the last day or so, uh, but in the end, Njal's saga won the vote. Um, now, I know there was a lot of enthusiasm last Saturday, which was really fun to see. Our, our good friend, uh, Brandon Hawk, really <laughs> led the charge for uh, for Njal. Well, I wouldn't have put it past Brandon to have hired some students to go and vote. But <laughs> however it happened, Njal pulled out a lot of extra votes in those fi- in that final hour or so. Yeah. So congratulations, Team Njal. Uh, you'll get your saga. I, I've got to be honest. I, I'm a little nervous about this one. And I know you have a sense of how to break Njal's saga up, but even mm-hmm. with clean breaks in the narrative... This is a daunting task, and I'm almost afraid it's going to carry us through to next year. Oh, it won't take that long. Four months tops. Sure, John, sure. But, <laughs> you know, in the meantime, we want to thank you all for your participation in the poll and for your active support on our social media sites. It's it's a lot of right. fun. And, and I want to point out, just to reassure everyone, uh, the point is that we are going to get to all the sagas eventually. So we will oh, actually yeah. still be doing Ale and Lakstala and indeed... <laughs> The saga of the people of Floy. There you go, Team Floy. Um, but in the meantime, you can join the conversation on Twitter, where we are saga thing at saga thing pod. 
Or you can join us on Facebook where we're Saga Thing Podcast. And as always, you can get in touch with us on our email, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, and remember to send us your pictures of saga-related statues and monuments. We've got some good ones up there now, so that project is starting to take shape like we wanted it to. Uh, And when you send your pictures, try to tell us a little bit about where you are and anything of interest about the site that you might know, or the statue, or the monument, or whatever you're showing us. And uh, while you're at it, we'll also accept saga-related sites. And for proof of that, you can go to the Statues and Monuments page on our website and look for the pictures of Andrew Midgemouth. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I love that one. Um, and, and if you're such a big fan of the podcast, then you also have two options. You can go to our Saga Thing store and get yourself a mug or a t-shirt to impress all your friends. And you can access that uh, through our website by clicking on the Saga Thing store link. Uh, beer always tastes better out of my Saga Thing mug. It does indeed. And your other option is then to head over to the iTunes website and write us a quick review for the podcast. I know, I know that that can be annoying, but, uh, it really helps to get the podcast noticed. The more reviews we have, the more likely people are to try the podcast out and take it seriously. Absolutely. Uh, and with that, I think we're finally done. Yay. Good night, sweet Rekdala Saga, and flocks of angels sing thee to thy rest. Flocks of Narfis, in my opinion. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. You need to read my mind faster.